Would you please stand for this morning's scripture reading? We will be reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 to 8, and chapter 9, verses 10 to 18. I will be reading from the ESV. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In Proverbs 9, verses 10 through 18. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is God's word. Well, this morning we start another series as we break from uh, Mark and Mark's gospel. And so uh, one thing is that back there, there's a couple of Proverbs scripture journals. You could take those. Those are our gift to you for being here with us. Let it encourage you to read your word and pray through your word and journal through your word. And this morning, really, we're in sort of uncommon territory. And I mean that for what is the future for us together here at Cross Point Coast Palm Bay. And then I also mean that for the history, the 18 years of Cross Point Churches being an actual thing. And what I say by that is this series, Fight for Joy, is is based out of the book of Proverbs, and it's centered around the historical idea of the seven deadly follies. Uh, So every week this week, you'll experience, after this week, you'll experience seven uh, pointed, specific, topical sermons geared around those follies. And and, and so what's, what's new, what's different is that that's not our, that's like, that's not common for us. Uh, we're we're not typically topical preachers. We are Bible book preachers, and so. But I, but I want to get it out in the front that there's nothing wrong with this style of preaching. Topical sermons historically have been used and leaned on heavily to guide the saints in the way that God would have them go. And throughout our union and our time together, topical sermons will sort of ebb and flow. They'll come in and out of our rhythm. But I just want to say that we're, we're sort of in uncommon ground in that this is not normative for us. What's our style, what's our stilo, what's our jam is Bible book preaching. We like going through books of the Bible or portions of books of the Bible. And so for the next eight weeks, I just want to let you know, not normal, but still good. That being said, I love Proverbs, don't you? I love Proverbs. So even if you've never heard of Proverbs or heard a proverb, you've heard a Proverbs. Proverbs is a, a, probably the most quoted book in all the Bible. Books have been uh, sort of written with the thesis and themes of 
stuff out of Proverbs. Uh, movies, the same thing. TV shows, sort of the same thing. It's on clothing. It's on uh, uh, websites. It's on, on company mottos. I mean, there are things uh, all around this world that come from Proverbs that, that really are either misquoted or misconstrued about Proverbs. And there lies the irony. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Proverbs is all about wisdom. And the most quoted portion of the Holy Scriptures of God's word to his children is often misquoted, misunderstood, and misused. From Proverbs, we find a wealth of godly wisdom. Wisdom straight from the mouth of God. And God's declaration in Proverbs, his great instruction from out of which all the other instruction flows in Proverbs is subordinate your thoughts. Submit your understanding to his, his advice for all the dilemmas you would face in this life is my ways are higher than yours. Trust in me. And this is why we're running to Proverbs this summer. We ask the question, how do we, in light of the sin in our life, submit to the wisdom of God? Now, hear me, family. You have to understand the sort of thesis of this series. When we say fight for joy, what we're not talking about is a battle for morality. We're not talking about a battle for morality. For the Christian, warring against sinfulness is not a battle for righteous living. We're not fighting for ethical goodness in this life. Every morning you wake up, you are not entering the crucible of moral righteousness. But this is what some of us want, right? What we want is for Christians like us, Christians, to be morally upright. We want our spouses, our children, our friends, our co-workers to adhere to our personal moral standards. We want them to be in the business of being good. But that's the world's fight. That's the world's fight. And you can see how that's going with cancel culture and the like. You don't adhere to my ways. I'm done with you. The fight that we're in is a fight for our affections. It is a fight for our desires. That is the fight for joy. That is the fight that you are in. That is the fight that your family is in. It is for joy. And some of y'all may have already misplaced this joy that we were talking about back in January. Some of y'all may have already forgotten the beautiful good news of joy that what God has purchased for you, you can't get taken away from you. And praise God that in his providence, we would come back to joy and back to it in light of seven root sins that stain our lives. But this morning, I'm here to do one thing and one thing only. The title of this message is the title of the series. It's to remind you to fight for joy. And family, this is a fight that you've already won. It's already been won for you. You are in a fight where your opponent has already been defeated. You are in a fight where the victory has already been won for you. You just got to stop throwing hands and stand in the victory that's been won. You got to give up your ways and take up God's. 
Before we continue, let's ask the Lord for his help this morning. Would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God? God, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. We thank you that we have you. And so, God, we ask you again this morning to sustain us with energy and softened hearts. God, would, God, you ordained this word for this time. You have, in your loving sovereignty, chosen this moment to shape us as a family. And, God, we ask you for ears to hear what you say. Would you gift me, the preacher, with clarity of speech and thought? Would you gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors in Christ's name? Amen. I want to ask you a question, a question our two texts this morning make abundantly clear that the answer to will shape everything you do in this life, how you respond to sin, how you respond to the sins of others, how you respond to the effects of sin in this world, everything. That question is, who do you fear? Who do you fear? In the fight that you are in, where are your eyes? What are you looking at? When professional fighters are trained, a bad habit that develops because of fear is the wrong placement of their eyes. Now, a fighter's fear is getting knocked out. Nobody wants to get slept in the middle of a fight, right? Nobody wants to be in the middle of a fight and get put to bed. And so it can be natural to watch the opponent's hands, to watch the opponent's eyes, because you feel a sense of comfort in knowing or thinking that you can see the damage coming to you, and you'll be able to react. The problem is, is that a skilled opponent, a crafty opponent, can use what you're looking at to deceive you for falling for a knockout blow. That's what happens when you think your way of doing the fighting is best because it feels comfortable to you in the moment, and that is what is relied on rather than what your trainer taught you. Amen? Oh, don't worry. This will preach. That sounds like sin, doesn't it? We all got patterns of sin in our lives. We all got junk that just won't go away. And some of you may be focused on the morality ethic of not sinning that you thought that by looking for ways not to sin, you'll be good because you won't see the sin coming. Mm -mm. Some of y'all thought that it would be good to instead of focusing on that sin, to look at something else to deter your energies. No. Our opponent is crafty. Our opponent is skilled. And what's worse, our opponent knows the state of our hearts. Sin will take what your gaze is on and make it a trap for you. And if you're not looking at the right things in this fight, if your affections, your knowledge, your hands are not surrendered to the training of your coach, if you ain't set on God, family, anything else you are set on will lead you to react in faulty ways. Set your eyes, set your heart on the ways of the Lord. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust, trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the word word you want to circle is trust. And do not lean on your own understandings. This trust isn't cognitive, normal trust. This is a deep-rooted, heart-level trust. The word trust here in Hebrew actually means to lean on. 
with your heart, your whole personhood is called to lean on, to throw yourself wholly on, not incline on, not recline on, but to throw yourself wholly on the Lord who says, cast your cares on me because I care for you and not your own understandings. Leaning on your own understandings is trusting in ourselves, our moral fortitude, our spiritual stamina. God's word here isn't trusting yourself and do these things to avoid sin. No, it's forsake your plan and stick with mine. This is not a battle for self-control. This is a battle for your affections. What we believe and want deep in our hearts. If you've ever gone through some mess in your life and you wonder to yourself, what would God have me say in this season? What would God have me do? He would say this right here. Whatever you're thinking about doing, can it? Refuse your plan and cling to mine, not just with your mind, with your heart. Your whole being yielded to me. You may think you know the right course of action. You may think that what you need to do is deal with your sin, particularly in solitude. But ultimately, family, what you need is to surrender yourself to what the Lord declares. Do not set yourself up to be led by your own understandings. Do not set yourself up to be led by your very often misleading heart. Because then you'll be like the fighter who set their eyes to the gloves of their opponent. You'll think you see the punches coming, but you'll quickly find yourself deceived and dismantled. Sin is a beast and you ain't a lion. Verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Trusting the Lord with your whole being, with your whole heart, has morality at the result, not the object of your desires. Trusting in the Lord is a surrendered will that allows God to sanctify his children. This verse does not say, trust in the Lord, acknowledge him, and you will make your path straight. That's not what this says. It says he will do it. He will do it. Acknowledge him in all your ways. In in the Hebrew means to be in relationship with him. To know deeply and personally God. When you know God, trust God with all your life, he guides you in life. That's That's a promise right there. He will make straight your paths. That's a That's a guarantee. That's not advice. Does not the Holy Spirit dwell in his children? Is he not residing inside of those he calls to himself? Spurgeon says, who shall set any limit to the power of that man in whom the Holy Ghost himself dwells? As believers, we must never dare to say that habit we cannot give up. We can and we must overturn all the idols in our heart. May we never say that height of devotion I could never reach. Family, if you don't 
trust in and fear the Lord in your life, the chances are you are doubting his power to liberate the strongholds of sin in your life. You are doubting his strength to liberate others. If you could just sit with that for a second and hear just how crazy that sounds. Has not the Holy One deserved our fear and trust? Has he not delivered Isaac from Abraham's hand? Has he not delivered Noah and Noah's family from the flood? Moses from the Nile and Egypt from Pharaoh? Has he, is he not the God of Israel and your God also? Has he not delivered us with Christ's blood? How dare we shrug off? How dare we shrug off the power of God to not sanctify us? functionally we live as though we say God you are mighty to save but not redeem God you are mighty to save but not sanctify me the truth is that sin cannot win this fight in Christ sin has already lost by the power of the Holy Ghost we can do what Proverbs tells us to because he makes the paths for us With God's help, we trust in him with all our hearts. Our job is to lean, wholly lean upon God and the power of his might to make straight our paths because nothing is impossible for him, including conquering sin. Chapter three, verse seven. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. All throughout Proverbs, we are taught that trusting the Lord is connected to fearing him. And fearing him leads us to life. Our texts this morning, our two texts this morning, are just two examples of this principle. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's not the point. We could do a whole series just on fearing God. But Proverbs teaches us right knowledge, right wisdom begins with right affection toward the right things. Every decision you make and what you do in this life flows from your heart's affections. I heard this analogy, and I don't know if it was Tim Keller or S.W. McKenzie, but it went like this. Nobody can read a book with a cockroach in the room. Nobody. Nobody notices the fat cockroach on the wall and just casually goes on reading the book. Nobody sits down with a book on their lap and sees a roach sitting next to them on the sofa and goes, hey, buddy. Now, I'm terrified of critters. I don't like, I don't like bugs, frogs, lizards, snakes, none of that. Nope, I don't do it. I ain't scared of roaches. I'm scared of what roaches mean. So you can ask my wife, a roach anywhere near my house, the whole house is going to smell like bleach for a week. I just don't like it. I don't play those games. But see, the point still stands. All of our actions are going to come out of that fear. The same way you would not just sit and read your book if there was a roach in the room. You're going to get up and find it. But the reverse or the positive of this illustration is also true. Living in the fear of the Lord understands God's hatred for sin and fears his judgment on sin. Fear of God 
is beholding his holiness, his purity, his cleanliness. Fear of God is to recognize what's wrong with me can't be solved by me. What's wrong in this world, what's wrong in my relationships, it can't be solved by me. The fear of the, fear of the Lord is the radical uplifting of God in your life that shapes everything else. Fearing God means there's nothing in this world you take more serious than him. The fear of God keeps God at the center of our lives. This is something we need to grow in. We need to grow in our fear of the Lord. God needs to continually be center in our lives and he will make our paths straight. Fear of the Lord happens when you're in relationship with him. The more you are in communion with God, the more his holiness contrasts your inability to keep a moral ethical standard that you're looking for. The more connected you are to God, the more you trust him and acknowledge him. And the more you acknowledge him, he will continue to guide you because you know that there are many routes in this journey, the, the many routes in this journey of life, but the straight path is the path that's laid out for you. Flip over to chapter 9. You'll see 10 through 13 or 10 through 12 flow right into that. But I want to take your attention to verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let them turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are in there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is where misplaced fear has its power. Our fear tempts us to find our hope and our satisfaction in the hands of Lady Folly. Lady Folly is seductive in every way. She is enticing with her loudness, her position in seemingly high places, drawing you to herself with her home and inviting you in, encouraging you to veer from the path that has been made straight for you, ensnaring you to trust her. In Disney's The Jungle Book, I'm going to be referring to the live action version because that's the better version. Mowgli is a boy raised in the jungle by wolves. Now forced to leave the jungle by the tiger Shere Khan, Mowgli begins to figure out how to get to the path to a nearby village that's inhabited by humans. Guided by his sort of godfather character, a black panther named Bagheera, Bagheera gives him instruction. And guides him along the way that he should go. But a situation happens. And Bagheera fights the fight for Mowgli. And leaves Mowgli with instructions. He says, head north to where the sky glows green. But in Mowgli's fear, he strays from the path and gets lost in the jungle. Now Mowgli finds himself in the presence of Ka the snake. 
Ka's cunning. She attempts to make Mowgli feel comfortable in her presence. She says that she'll keep him safe. She showers him with compliments. She appeals to his fear, whispering comforting words. She even passes knowledge to him to make him more trustful of her. In the original story, Ka sings a song to him, sort of like a lullaby, while she's coiling her body around him. She sings these words to Mowgli. She says, trust in me, just in me. Shut your eyes and trust in me. You can sleep safe and sound, knowing I'm around. Trust in me. Ain't this true of us too? Ain't this true of us too? When God makes the path straight, head north where the sky glows green, we make a tour, a turn towards Lady Folly and listen to her song. Every sin, every wrongdoing, public or private, is a declaration of our trust. Our sin is testifying to our misplaced trust, highlighting the object of our fear. Every sin is born out of a belief that, that our way will produce joy rather than being obedient to God. No one sins out of duty. Sin is an exposure of the heart. This is where we find the pattern of sins in our lives. And at the root of those sins lies seven root sins. You may say, Pastor, there's more than just seven sins. You're right. But in order to deal with habits of sins, patterns of sins, you've got to determine whether what you're dealing with is root or fruit. Our sins are not just matters of morality, doing bad things. They're about matters of joy. The sin is not about merely our faithfulness to God, but rather finding our deepest, most satisfying fulfillment in everything other than God. At sin's core is the idea that there is something more desirable than him. Throughout church history, many scholars have tried to understand patterns of sin and why we do it. Thomas Aquinas organized sin into two categories, venial sins and mortal sins. And it was helpful to the church up to a point, but a problem began to take shape. First, the categories suggest that one category was more damnable than other sins, right? This goes against what Jesus is saying, right? Like, well, you lusted, nah, that's okay. I mean, everybody does, but you you committed adultery. It's hellbound. Repent. And so it becomes these two classifications that sort of makes it weird. The problem is, is that we still do this. We still do this. We have big sins and small sins. We have already predetermined to us what is tolerable and less tolerable to our appetites. We have sort of uh, 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 tried to talk ourselves into lawful sins and unlawful sins. This is faulty ground to judge sin on. It will quickly have more questions than answers and more sin than deliverance. The second issue, that was the first issue with the, the venial or mortal sin problem. The second issue is that it didn't allow for a true diagnosis of sinfulness in the heart of the believer. Thus, patterns of sin can't be dealt with at the root because there's no framework for understanding where the lie has been believed or where the wrong fear is being held 
or where the guilt and the shame is coming from. It's just categorized sin. Traditional Protestant reformers got rid of the seven sin framework, saying that there was no explicit biblical explanation available, and they opted to diagnose sin in other ways. But this soon, too, became unhelpful. However, contemporary Protestants began a resurgence using the seven sins framework, making sure not to encourage the idea that some sins are more damnable than others, but rather to use this as a diagnostic. A diagnostic of fear, or the diagnostic of understanding, uh, sort of creating questions and categories to help us walk in Christ's victory over our deepest, darkest inclinations. Let's be clear. All sin is reminiscent of our parents' sin in the garden. God provided lasting joy in the confines of his instruction for creation. Humanity's genesis was harmonious, joy-filled living. Adam and Eve, believing the words of the serpent, believed that true joy lied elsewhere. And when their eyes were on God, the fruit was seen as separate and sacred, almost holy. When their eyes were on themselves, the fruit was desirable and a delight to their eyes. They ate it seeking joy in what they believed would bring it to them. We do the same thing. When our fear is set on God, his ways are obvious and plain. And when our eyes begin to drop and begin to fixate on other things and comfort, the ways of God all of a sudden don't appear to bring lasting pleasure anymore. But if we leave the diagnosis here in the general terms, we don't see the problem as clear. We have to ask questions to get to the root of our unbelief. Why did our eyes shift? What is enticing about this fruit? Why was, the most, why was this my most natural inclination? What am I not believing about God in this moment? And there you will find one of seven different faces looking back at you. Once you see the face of the serpent, then you know how to crush its head. You run to the cross. You run to the cross. Patterns of sin is not thoroughly defeated through the power of self-forgetfulness, but through finding a greater desire. Our only hope is in Christ who can search the deepest places of our hearts and lead us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, to the one who crushed sin's power. I'm going to close with this encouragement to you. Isn't it crazy? I don't know if you've noticed this. Isn't it crazy that we have attributed being human to being sinful? I'll explain myself. You and I have said this. I'm human, so I sin. Right? We said it. I'm human, so I'm going to sin. As if we have made the reality of who God made us to be synonymous with serpent dealing. I challenge this thinking. It is more human to avoid sin than to sin. You sin not because you are human. Sin is a curse. 
That wasn't the original plan for humanity, nor is that how humanity is defined. Otherwise, if Christ was 100% man, he would be 100% sinful. And that is not true. Christ has never committed a sin. To be human is to live in light of your creator. And our creator is spotless. Jesus God has defined humanity in his original plan in the garden. And Christ further defines humanity in his humanity here in this world. Did, was he not tempted by Satan himself in his humanity? Yes. And did he avoid sin in his deity? No. Christ avoided sin in his humanity. We don't sin because we're human. We sin because we're cursed. Humanity, true humanity, defined in God or by God, is to live in light of our creator who is spotless. And when we are made his, we have taken on our true identity. First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his light. We all struggle with patterns of sin. Some of you may be in the thick of it now, but the truth is that God made you excellent and God made you to have virtue, that God made you to shine. You have been chosen by God to walk in true humanity, defined as demonstrating the excellencies and character of God. You have reason this morning to hope in light of one of these sins or many of these sins that may be pressing your life. And in this hope, you have assurance of life the secret to freedom from habits of sin begins with honest rigorous prayerful examinations of what lies you have believed discovering the places you are listening to the lullaby of the serpent and not trusting in the promises of God then remind yourself of those better promises do not be like Mowgli, who is being coiled by the snake and can't see death's sting at his door because the lullaby is too sweet. But rather follow the path made straight for you north until the sky glows green. Again, this is not a fight for moral living. This is a fight for joy. Lady Folly invites you to her house. And all her death guests are dead. God invites you to a kingdom where he reigns and rules for his glory and your joy. Be convinced that the God of your salvation is the source of all superior joys for you. The more resolved you will be in your fight for those joys. Stand with me and worship.